Right now on Tech Radio, Facebook is ticking us off. Hi, I'm Artemis. I am a computer-generated AI voice, and you're listening to Tech Radio. Every week online and on air with RTE Radio, we bring you the latest in tech. You're welcome to episode 958. This week, a little later on the show, we'll be talking generative AI with no less than United Nations Artificial Intelligence Advisor, Neil Sahota. We're also chatting about Windows finally running on Mac chips and two very subtle but devious email hacks you probably don't know about, but should. This is Tech Radio with Dusty Rhodes and Niall Kitson. Our Tech Central Editor-in-Chief, Niall Kitson, is here. He is first in the line. Everybody stand back to get the new Facebook blue tick. Facebook blue. Facebook is going straight. That's basically what, you know, they're, they're, for real this time. We're, look, we're, we're not going to feed you full of misinformation. We're not going to try and subvert democracy here. We've got a little system here that's going to prove it. And it's ever so slightly familiar. Yeah. So, well, uh, go on, Dusty. What's the deets? No, I was just going to say, what happened when Twitter did this? Everybody oh, it went incredibly well. <laughs> yeah, terrible. Everybody was registering as famous people because they could pay their 12 quid a month or whatever. And they would get the little blue tick to say that they were indeed Elon Musk. I mean, you know, the, the, the whole blue tick thing has just been made a mockery of. Like, I have a blue tick. And, the, you know, the, the, the reason I have it was uh, Twitter released, well, released, they, they trialed a sort of a system where if you are a person of interest, like myself, um, like if you're a source of information or someone that people would I be know. meant to listen I to, know, yeah. you know, you could claim your name. Um, and initially they didn't, uh, they didn't respond to me. And then I did the whole, do you not know who I am? Nonsense. Oh no, Niall, you're losing. Once you yeah. say, do you not know who I am? You've lost. Yeah. Anyway, so you uh, said it and they came back and they went, no, we don't know who you are. <laughs> but here's a tick anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I got my blue tick. I complained. and um, But now like a blue tick means nothing. You, you go out, it just shows that you're dumb enough to part with money for Twitter. Um, and this is pretty much what Facebook are doing as well. They've come up with their own exactly. little blue tick system to, to demonstrate that you have been dumb enough to part with 12 euros a month well, to be on Facebook. I wouldn't say if you're dumb enough, because I think the people who'd be interested in it are brands or companies or famous people or whoever, all right, that people would want to impersonate. And I think this is a good way for Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whoever to say, actually, do you know what? We've checked it with this person. We've seen their government ID. We've done blah, 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 blah. This is the genuine thing. Bump, don't, not to be confused with others. I think it's a good plan, right? Well, come on, uh, paying 12 quid a month for it. That's what, 144 euro well, a year. There you go. There's the thing, right? Yeah. The cost, cost won't matter to a company, right? You think Coca-Cola is, is going to be worried about a blue tick? Well, exactly. No, of course they're not. Well, that's that, that's like, what I'm saying. It's twelve. It's twelve quid a month. So it's basically it's just it's another revenue stream for for Facebook. Nothing the, to do the, with oh, we want to make sure that the information you have is the most accurate yeah. possible. Ah, that's it. Yeah, ah, it's ah. it's it's you know some kind of scam or scamola. It's it's just a land grab to make sure nobody else gets to be co cola. 
Coca-Cola. Speak, speaking of scams, uh, I have two brilliant ones that I picked up during the week, uh, both to do with email, all right, and viruses and, and attachments and stuff like that, and email threads. It's like, it's really, wow, that is, I'll tell you about it in a minute. Uh, but first, uh, you have a story about an Instagrammer, seeing as we're talking about Facebook. Yeah, seeing seeing as we we have a time, you know, it's kind of a, a tale as old as old as time itself. You know, it's like somebody comes up with a great idea. It's a little bit dodgy, but they they give it a go, and you know what? It gets a little bit too famous, and you know, you you end up trying to sort of the lie becomes so suffocating, even though it was meant to be such a fun and normal thing at the start. It's not even Frankenstein's monster. What? What is it? It's a, it's like something out of an 80s teen movie or something like that. It's like, no, I'm not really rich. I'm this other guy. Well, spare a thought for Joss Avery, uh, an Instagrammer who people think is absolutely genius at putting together these beautifully composed photographs. Uh, no, they're not really photographs. They're AI generated images um, that he has touched and retouched and retouched again. Uh, in Photoshop. So he has roughly 26,000 followers, a growing uh, a growing fan base as it will. And in fairness, these pictures are absolutely stunning. And he puts little um, stories to go with them as well, just to really, mm. you know, add pathos. And, you know, if he didn't, if you bought into it from the beginning that this is going to be an AI thing, that's fine. And you'd be like, that's really good. That's, you know, very convincing. It's got a little thing to do with it. I appreciate the effort. I appreciate the craft. Um, this is nice. And maybe in the future, this will be the thing. You know, people will generate images mm-hmm. and they'll have a little story to go with them. And it'll mm-hmm. be, you know, it'll be a little art form unto itself. And I'm, I'm down with that. However, people have been looking at these pictures and going, oh, look how talented he is. What, what were you taking what what were you using to take uh, take these pictures with? And you know, eventually he came out and he said, "Oh yeah, I'm using this kind of camera and this kind of lens." Um, and yeah, he, he was been using a service called Midjourney, which we've talked about before. Yeah. It's kind of like Dali. It's um, you know, uh, you put in a voice prompt and it gives you back a, a picture, but not telling right? anybody, <laughs> not telling anybody. Yeah. So you know, it's a subscription service. I want blah. It gives you back picture yeah. and he's been taking those pictures and refining them and refining them in uh, in Photoshop uh, and layering and doing all this stuff. In fairness, the pictures are great. If I knew what they were, you know, yeah. logging on, I'd be really happy. Right now he's like, oh God, I've created this monster. People are going to kill me over this. I, I had a really strange job today uh, and I'll, I'll tell you, all right, because we're mates, but I would never publicly admit this. It's certainly okay. not for the people that I was working for anyway, all right. Uh, I was doing some work and I ended up coming across something that I needed, but it was in a foreign language and I hadn't a clue, all right. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I was giggling to myself because the way I got around it was I used a, a website called Textize to uh, I, I copied uh, the URL of this page, which is full of ads and pictures and text and da da da. da. I put it into Textize in the foreign language, right? Textize yeah. just gave me back the text. All right, got rid of all yeah. the ads, got rid of all the pictures and da da da. So I got all this foreign text, and then I went to Google Translate. Mm-hmm. Then I put it in and I translated it into English. Okay. Then mm. I went to ChatGPT. <laughs> I put it to ChatGPT and I said, summarize this article in 300 words and boom, boom, boom. There you go. <laughs> Done. Wow. Done. I saw, I saw a demonstration today also yeah, in similar territory. Um, I saw a guy ask ChatGPT to write an essay on 
subject X. Um, actually, no, it was describe how this works, hmm. right? And it gave him a description. And then he said, describe how it works to a five-year-old. And it gave a summary in simple language. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's great. Now, on the other side of it, right, I had a, yeah. another thing. Um, <clears throat> it was a sales company I was dealing with. Um, and I went on to their chatbot to ask a question about, do you have blah, blah, blah? Well, I knew it was a chatbot. And I hmm. went, yeah, sure, blah, blah, blah. If you just uh, give me your email address so that we know that we have uh, all, you, that you're talking to the right, whatever. It was just some made yeah. up thing. And I went, I'm not giving my email to this thing because it's a sales company. And I know from hard experience that when you give your email to these people, they put it in a database, which gets sold. And then two weeks later, you get all kinds of emails and calls to kinds of strange people. So I went, very simply, I'm not giving you my email. Could you just tell me blah, 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 blah. And it came back with, I don't understand. <laughs> of course it did. Of course it did. Just give me your email address and I'll be able to. And I went, I'm not giving you my, <laughs> and it literally yeah. descended into, you're a stupid bot. A human would have, because <laughs> hopefully somebody will pick it up somewhere along the line and get a giggle out of it. But how and ever, how and ever. So AI, we're going to be talking more about AI in a few minutes time with our interview this week. Uh, good news, good news this week and okay. bad news this week. Okay. Windows is finally available on Mac, M1, M2, whatever it is you want. Yay! In a kosher version. Oh, yes. Uh, And it's all official. Yeah. Hacking, it's all official. Yes. Anyone who is familiar with Parallels, uh, which is uh, a piece of software that allows you to run uh, Windows on a Mac. Um, Of course, uh, fairly problematic piece of software given uh, Apple Silicon, but it looks like, well, it looks like, I mean, Parallels have said, yes, you can now run Windows on uh, Mm. Apple Silicon. Um, Now, it's not quite going to be 100% because, uh, yeah, it's not quite going to be 100%, but it'll be there or thereabouts. Also, uh, in a, haha, parallel development, it looks like there'll be a version of Linux that will be able to run on Apple Silicon as well. So all the operating systems are coming to Apple Silicon, uh, which is going to be great, uh, great for Apple because people that don't use their OS would be like, oh, that's great. I'm using it. And what's this Mac OS thing? Is it any good? Mm, for and years, for years, I have been using Windows software on Mac hardware. And mm. it's great. What a great mm. combination. Because Windows is just so flexible and you can use it in so many different ways. It doesn't have the walled garden. Yet the Macintosh hardware is very good. Overpriced, but nevertheless, very good. Um, mm. So I would love to be able to pick up like a, a Mac Mini or something like that with an M1, M2, whatever, and run Windows on it. It'd be great little machine. Mm. But yeah. uh, that running it on parallels? Nah. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so you sure. know, I mean, well, we had boot camp, which is of course no, no longer with us, hasn't no. been for quite a while. Uh, and that was, that was always super useful. And yeah. it was, you know, uh, Apple just going, yes, we know you do this. We'll just hide it away mm. in the utilities section. So you won't, you won't notice it. Uh, and that was, that was pretty good. Um, but to have parallels be able to come out and go, yes, it's pretty much, you know, this is official support. This is good. Uh, I, um, can't say I'm looking forward to it because I don't own a Mac at the, at the moment, but mm. I think it's a I think it's a really healthy healthy development. It's actually going to help the PC market overall, which I think actually yeah. needs a boost given the way uh, sales are going at the moment. But nobody wants. Uh, uh, yeah, sorry. I thought you were talking about specifically about uh, desktop computers, which you're not. You you include uh, laptops and all that kind yeah. of. Yeah, you're yeah. right. You're right. Right. Anyway, listen. Uh, let's wrap up the news with two little things that I picked up. All right. Um, apparently, 
there is a new practice, or maybe it's been going on. It's new to me anyway, right? Uh, and okay. it's called email thread hijacking. All right. Okay. And what the hackers do is they get access to an account. All right. So they're mm-hmm. able to log in, blah, 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 blah. Instead of sending email as you, all right, they find out where uh, you have an email thread going. And then they yeah. will jump in the middle of that thread as you saying, oh, yeah, lads, I've got the answer to that question. Just click the file attached. Mm. Boom. Yeah. So that's clever. That, that is clever. All right. And even cleverer is a thing called um, it's it's a reverse text. All right. I saw this on, on YouTube and I was fascinated by it. Right. Uh, there's a Unicode character. OK. That you put in the, the number for it. All right. And it changes our text, which is normally typed from left to right to right to left. So you're kind of typing mm-hmm. backwards if, if you want to put it that way. Right. And what that does is it reverses any text that comes after it. Okay. Now this can be used to spoof a file's extension. All right. So what you would do is you would put in the reverse character. So you'd have file name. All right. And then you yeah. put in the reverse character. So everything that's coming after is reversed. And you type, uh, I think, a PDF dot EXE. All right. Mm-hmm. Make it an executable mm-hmm. file. But of course, when you type it and when you send it to somebody, it's reversed. So it looks like the name of file name PD, uh, uh, exe dot PDF. Right. Because everything is back to front. Yeah. Yeah. So and it, it looks like a PDF file exactly when it's actually, yeah. when it's actually yeah. an, an executable file. So you've got to be super, super, super careful. And I've seen kind of one of these, and I know they're really dodgy emails that are coming in, all right? And it and it ends in a PDF. And kind of, I used to be like kind of, ah, I'll just open it, it'll be fine. Uh, or if I was really kind of cautious, I go, well, I'll upload it to a website that opens PDFs. <laughs> Let them worry yeah. about it. Um, so but, if something lands in your inbox, hmm. right, what would it look like? Is it like exe.filename.pdf? It might say, it might say exe and it might not. You, you just don't know. But what I'm saying is they're using, they're able to reverse the text on that to fake the type of file that it is. So they might call it right. a TXT file or a PDF file or something mm. innocuous, like a, a JPEG or something like that. So you just yeah. got to be, you got to be so careful. Because I mean, we the, all the know. Original, the original file type you would expect is actually at the start of the email. Uh, instead of the at, at, at the start of the file name. Yes, yeah. exactly. Okay. You know, so yeah. it's really, really, I mean, basically uh, what I would do, I would jump onto YouTube and I would do uh, search for reverse text to hide virus files, something like that. Mm. All right. And right. then you'll see the guy explain it and you'll kind of go, ah, audio sometimes. Not that great way of doing that. However, however, there we go. Listen, that is all the news that is news for this week. Now, as always, thanks for keeping us up to date. Remember, you can get the latest Irish tech news with hourly updates, daily newsletters, and more at our website, techcentral.ie. We like to believe AI will never build better products or be better artists, but are we deluding ourselves to think that there will be some things that can't be replicated or surpassed by artificial intelligence? Neil Sohota is an IBM master inventor and United Nations artificial intelligence advisor. He had a chat with Niall Kitson during the week about the possibilities of generative AI. Neil, I have to ask, we mentioned in the segue there that you are a master inventor. So well, 
What does that involve? How does one become a master inventor? That's an interesting question. Um, very simply put, you're a person that's developed brand new disruptive technology that basically has multi-billion dollar potential. So when we talk about multi-billion dollar potential, straight away, you've got to delve into that debate of, you know, Bard versus chat GPT uh, and generative AI, which is kind of what we're, for want of a better term, stuck with at the moment. Um, how impressed are you with these technologies so far? Do you think they're, they're, there's definite potential or do you think that they're inherently limited by the quality of the data they have? Really, Neil, it's both. Um, the interesting thing here is I'm a big advocate for generative AI. And I think the I think it's kind of a crowdsourcing approach like that chat GPT and to some degree Dolly 2 has done was smart to do a kind of a broad, quicker type of training. However, I think a lot of people don't realize that, you know, some of these generative AI technologies we're talking about have been around for actually six or seven years. So like 2016, I was working with like Alex the Kid to use generative AI to help develop new uh, songs and lyrics. Been using it actually generative AI in food and agriculture. Actually working with even farmers in like Bangladesh back in 2017. The interesting thing is, I think there's more comfort now with AI, and more importantly, there's more belief in that AI is able to you know do things like original content. I think that's why you've seen the explosion and the embracement, rightfully so, of things like ChatGPT. I think it comes down to uh, that user experience that chat is so easy as opposed to, you know, requiring any sort of code. <laughs> it will, in fact, give you code if needed. Uh, that's kind of been the key to bringing these technologies to, uh, to popular consciousness. 100% in the fact that people can apply it to, I'll call it, quote unquote, mundane things in their lives. I think that's made it very real for them. Because interestingly enough, I was talking to a friend of mine and you know, her uh, son, who's in his like, mid-20s, is actually using ChatGPT to create cover letters based off the job description. So real, simple, practical use. And I think that's the power people are tapping into. That's really fascinating because I, I I know cover letters uh, for whatever uh, industry can be quite prone to uh, cultural shifts, to changes in uh, the way they're uh, written, the kind of language that's in there. So on one level, you've got a really nice solution, but on another, you've got something that's potentially quite dated as well. That's definitely true. And I, that's the, I guess, at least my big fear it's not that everything like generative AI, like something like ChatGPT or you know, even Dolly 2 is going to do perfectly and it's going to make mistakes. Like nothing is, is perfect or 100% right all the time. That's really my concern is that when these things happen, if they're either small or maybe even big, will people assume that's correct or the best way of doing it or neglect some of the cultural differences as a result? So you mentioned Dali there, which is sort of the the first, I don't know, big example of AI generated art, um, uh, an application that has a lot of controversy around it because it's basically using 
um, or responding to concepts based on a data set of other people's work. Uh, when it comes to um, you know, either interpretation or the corpus uh, that the likes of Dali will be working with. Do you think it, it should be something of an opt-in for artists that they that they think, well, yeah, I think this idea would work really well as a concept for something else. Let's let's do this. Let's make this available. Or is it one of these sort of information wants to be free arguments where? the use is so far removed from the original intention that it is something else entirely from the get-go. Well, Neil, you're, you're hitting on actually an interesting point that gets hotly debated in my work with the United Nations and actually some of the government agencies. Because legally speaking, um, there's actually, Dolly 2 is actually protected to use that work because there's a especially a free-to-use license if it's for training purposes. So like if you go to a museum and you see one like kind of sketching and copying a, like a famous painting, that's actually perfectly acceptable. And so that same principle applies as the law is currently written. Now people have said, should we change the law? You know, no one anticipate, you no know, machine being able to do these things. Perhaps that's the debate. I, however, think we're going to see a shift that – I totally get what the like the artists are saying, but I think you'll start seeing that that kind of corpus, that data will become a differentiator as more of these tools start coming out. You might see a shift in where artists start, you know, providing exclusive content, you know, based on some licensing agreement to help train specific generative AI systems rather than just a broad bunch. That I think is probably what's going to happen in the future. I suppose there's also the issue of sort of keeping up with trends, which I suppose will be accelerated when you have such free access to good quality uh, source material. A hundred percent. And I think that's the challenge. You know, um, I think actually Gary Vaynerchuk basically said that you can't sweat the content. You know, you might as well put out as much as you can for free and not worry about it because ultimately you know, you're building a brand and if you're good at what you do, people will still come and seek your help or your your advice, whatever it might be. I think we can't lose sight of that. It's not that the necessarily the artists are going to be totally frozen out, but I think there's a different type of opportunity for them. Much as the, the nature of work has changed throughout the decades, I think we'll see this kind of transformation happen at a fairly rapid pace now. So let's talk about a specific application of AI that has been in the news for, for better and ill over the last few years. And this is the idea of deep fakes. Now, there was a, an erroneous story circulated in the media last year that Bruce Willis uh, was working with a, a Russian company basically to create a digital version of himself for use pretty much anywhere, uh, I guess, so long as so long as he gets paid for his effort or, or lack thereof. Uh, do you see a point in the future where we will have such digital actors renting out their likeness for the duration of a project, uh, especially if it's something they can't be present for in person? So interestingly enough, that's already happened. <laughs> so there are some actors for, you know, lack of bandwidth, as you're, as you're kind of calling out, but still want the opportunities, have worked with companies to create digital twins. And of course, the difference being that digital twin, there's permission and rights to, to use the likeness, whereas deep fakes, there's no permission. 
Um, I probably can't name names, but there are some rather famous artists and celebrities that are doing that. In fact, one person that has kind of publicly came out and admitted this was Bernard Marr, who's a you know famous influencer and futurist. And I know that the Screen Actors Guild is actually actively looking at this because there's there are a lot of actors that are interested in doing this. The problem is on the deep fake side that how do you know that if something gets produced, that's legitimate or not? What's the verification process? Because, you know, as you referenced the Russian video with Bruce Willis, they didn't have his permission. You know, we've seen other things with Tom Cruise, you know, President Obama and so forth. And that's the big challenge that we actually have. How do we know if that's really a digital twin or that's really a deep fake? And there, there are sort of little hints of things that we've gotten quite used to as viewers at the moment, like digital de-aging. That do you, do you think in the future, in case uh, instead of being a case of oh look, Tom Cruise has had his wrinkles taken out, it'll be oh somebody generated Tom Cruise as a twenty-year-old for this role. I think it's probably going to be more of the latter, and I think you're going to see a push from the actors to you know protect that they're essentially their likeness is going to be IP, intellectual property. I mean, there's there's no way around it. We've already seen this in, in some movies now where you talk about the de-aging, but even actors that have passed away, um, they quote-unquote bring them to life. There's another actor, usually in a green suit, that you know is there doing the lines, but then they superimpose the image of the actor that had passed away and, you know, with things like, you know, flawless AI, some of these other, you know, kind of language programs, you can almost perfectly mimic their voice. So you've really got a digital recreation of someone that's not even around anymore. And I think that there, there was a really good example of that with Peter Cushing in uh, Rogue One. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't quite work out because the technology wasn't there yet. So it was like looking at a cartoon uh, instead of a, an actual person. Um, uh, when it comes to reacting to digital fakes um, or deep fakes uh, on film, do you think we're going to hit that sort of uncanny valley element where it will feel much more like watching animation than watching you know, people interacting with a, a digital actor? It's a good question. I really see the trend towards more realism. That's why I see a lot more research going on in honing the the digital graphics part of it. If you look at like some of the like the VR you know modules that have come out today versus, you know, 6 7 years ago, they look a lot more refined, they look more realistic. There there's still that kind of cartoonish quality to them. I think we don't quite have the computing power to do the the renderification as much. But there was a movie that came out in the 1990s, and I, I can't think of what it was. I can't think of the name, unfortunately, off the top of my head. But the whole thing was basically, um, well, animated using like avatars. But it was incredibly realistic. If you looked at it, it was very difficult to distinguish that. Was that really like a a digital art or was that actually a person and they were clever about it they did things that you know well most of the people didn't have hair like they had short hair 
very, very short hair or they wore hats or helmets because obviously hair has emotion to it. The main character did have short hair and I think they spent 70% of their processing power just to animate the hair. So obviously computing powers come a long way since then, but I think that's really the big stumbling block is that we don't have computing power or at least cost effective enough yet for that realism. And I suppose when you're in that sort of awkward phase, you can you can almost look at it as a stylistic choice as well. I, I think so too. I mean, for, at least for the moment, I think some people, there's a subconscious level of comfort knowing that you can distinguish what's real and not real. However, I'll also say that I think that's going to change. You know, my early days with Watson, we started doing kind of the AI robots with Aldebaran Systems and PuffBank. We went out of our way to make the robots sound like robots, even though we could have given them realistic human voices. We made them do herky-jerky motions, all this stuff, to basically dehumanize them. And we were shocked by the feedback we got from people like, well, this is good, but can you make them more human-like? You know, do they have to sound like this? Do they have to move like this? And we were like, whoa, what? You're, you're comfortable with that? And they're like, yeah, that's what we want. So I, I really see the trend moving to that direction. I think it's very interesting the way we're seeing robotics at the moment, that whenever there's any sort of human or animal trait replicated, it, it does create this sense of empathy. I mean, I think the last Boston Dynamics um uh, presentation I saw I had them kicking uh, this sort of um, robotic dog and you do feel you know sympathy you do feel that there's an actual animal being uh, being abused here and um, that's very much a problem isn't it when it comes to looking to advance the technology if there's you know this sense that you know I can't ethically do this to another you know another creature why would I do it to a robot I think, though, that we still separate some of this out in our mind. You know, I, I hate to put it this way, but I've seen enough real life examples where people treat like animals, like their, their pet dog or cat, much, much better than they treat other people. So I don't know what the psychological dynamic is, but it seems like people are trending towards this more realism because... You know, I don't know if it's an innate sense of, you know, you have to create that kind of sense of belonging, that there's enough similarity that we can, quote unquote, coexist. Or it's just so alien to what people are used to, it freaks them out. Let's briefly talk about your work with the UN. I mean, I'm sure there's a sense that when an emerging technology comes around, there's a natural scratching of heads going, well, well what the hell do we do with this? Um, what's the reception that you found at UN level when it comes to generative AI? They're actually very embracing. You know, we've, we've come a long way. When I, when I first got engaged with the UN in 2015, you know, the attitude was always, okay, we got to what does this mean? How do we regulate this? We need experts to help us figure out what will go wrong and the bad things. You know, there's been a shift in the mindset and I've, I've helped transform some of that and that these are not just things to be regulated, but these are tools that can be used to help like with the sustainable development goals, the SDGs. So that we're at a point today where we see something like ChatGPT come out 
it's not just a question of, okay, what can go wrong? But it's a question of, okay, how can we use this to help some of our goals from our projects or our initiatives? And I think that's actually a healthy attitude. We, we know that all technology is a tool. It can be used for good or for evil, unfortunately. It's just how people wield it. But being, I think, receptive to, okay, could we use this tool to help people is a good, good mode of thought. Otherwise, I think we'd still be stuck in this cycle of regulation and policy rather than difference making. Yeah, and that element of policy must have an awful lot of flexibility or, or difference from one country to another. Um, being based on the other side of the Atlantic, um, you know, the, the States in particular sees itself as a, an innovator. Um, do you think it's actually on the cutting edge or do you look towards Europe and go, do, do you know what, with attitudes to data, for example, they're probably actually a bit more future proof? I, I definitely agree with that statement. And I would probably just add on is that I know in the US, everyone feels that we're very innovative and, and to, we are. I'm not going to dispute that. But are we the best innovators? Or like, are we at the top of the game with some of this stuff? And I think actually the answer is no. And you're actually touching upon that point with data and future proofing in that you look at some of the Asian countries, the, the governments are making a lot more data available. And we all know that data is the fuel for AI. And so that's why they're they're making faster leaps and bounds with the technology. Usage aside, moral concerns aside, because you know that gets debated to no end in the UN, that's also the reality. You know, we we've seen like in China, they've made immense strides in using AI to advance healthcare. Like even if you're in a in a rural hospital with limited resources, their quality of care is almost on par with the big cities because of these AI tools. And that was Neil Sahota chatting with Niall Kitson. And his book, Own the AI Revolution, is available in ebook and audiobook form on his website at neilsahota.com. And it's also believed in hardback, which is the thing that we used to have where the book is made of paper. Great fun. This is Tech Radio. That's it for our show this week. There are more stories that we haven't had time for uh, this week, including an AI being used to grade leaving cert biology mocks, <gasps> TikToks, new Irish data centre, and what percentage of Irish organisations expect to be carbon neutral for 2030. All those stories on our website right now at techcentral.ie. We're back again next Friday on RTE Radio 1 Extra. Of course, you can get new episodes automatically by clicking follow on your podcast player. Until then, from myself, Dusty Rhodes, and from Niall Kitson, thank you for listening. Have a great weekend. Tech Radio is produced by dustpod.io. From me, Artemis, goodbye. Goodbye.